welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Eight weeks ago, I asked you this question. What would it take to be great in 2021? What would it take to be great in 2021? What does greatness look like for you? Actually, in that span of time, my wife and I, Jen, uh, with our two older boys, our teenagers, watched a Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. If you haven't watched it, you need to. If you're a teenager, you need to watch it. Young adult, if you have teenagers or young adults, you should watch it together. Uh, It's a fun and scary evening. Um, But one of the things they pointed out, directly and indirectly, is that we are now, through social media, Uh, aware of what other people are doing and what other people think of us to the level of like millions, Um, not just the few people in our circles that we happen to know in our neighborhood or our friends or our family, but we are aware of what millions of people think about us. And we are seeing the greatness that millions of other people are achieving, if I can say it that way. We are aware of uh, how many people, how many million people are so beautiful, maybe more beautiful than we are. We are aware of how many uh, beautiful houses there are out there, how many people seem to be able to make so much money doing all kinds of things and then spend it on wonderful things that we would love. We are aware of how many likes, how many followers, how many subscribers, how many shares. Um, And it's not only sort of confirming for us that wealth, power, fame, beauty, popularity, recognition are the standards of greatness in our culture, but it's also making us aware of how far behind we are the standards. Oh man, I can't, I'm not great enough. How could I get there? And yet we said for our exploration and our attempt to answer that question, of what would it take to be great in 2021? There's an answer that's actually 2000 years old that no one has ever improved upon. It's the best answer ever to that question. The answer is love. That love is greater than all of those other definitions of greatness because in the end, it seems to be the thing that not only lasts, but it is the thing that at the end of our lives, people seem to value more than accomplishments. And in fact, some of those accomplishments, if they were not fueled by love or done with love, they aren't considered so great any longer, which means love trumps them all. Love is greater than everything. And so we said, hey, it's worth taking our time at the beginning of this year, never mind to where we'll be at the end of our lives, but where we'll be 12 months from now, to say, what would it take to grow in love, to become a more loving person? Now, as we come to the end of this series, we actually have a chance today, a gift to sila, which uh, was explained to you a little bit earlier, is a, um, a word that finds its way into uh, worship, both ancient worship of Israel with their God, but also modern Christian worship. It is a invitation to pause. And it's like, you know, not hitting pause on Netflix. It's like a holy pause. It is a recognition that, whoa, we need to stop long enough to remember that we are in the presence of God to remember that God is speaking to us and speaking deep and profound and wonderful and good and really important things to us. And especially as we've been talking about this uh, massive issue, this thing about love that is greater than everything, that is worth um, more of our time and our energy and focus than almost anything else we could set ourselves to. 
we could, in, in a sense, a dangerous way, just go, yep, okay, we're done with love, like on to whatever's next, moving on, as if it's over. It's like, no, no, it's just beginning. This is just beginning to open our eyes to what it means to actually be loving. And so we need to pause, and we want to pause here to reflect on what has God been saying to us? Um, what have things have been uh, unraveled or unwrapped in our lives? What things have we begun to understand about ourselves? What has not only sort of arrested our mind, but has been moving our heart and our emotions so we can stop long enough and reflect? And there's a really, actually a really important reason when it comes to the issue of love, why we should stop and pause here before we move on. Because there's something if we don't realize we could move on with and try to, in a sense, attempt to do all of the stuff that we've learned, try to become more loving people. And yet if we don't pause and realize this one really important thing, we could end up not actually becoming more loving people. We could not end up in the place we really want to be. And here's what I mean. I want to pause here for a moment and just, uh, and so actually this, this gathering, this service, this time is going to be filled with opportunities to pause and reflect and to look back and to look in, to look forward. But I want to read to you just a couple of the descriptions of love that we have in particular camped out on these last few weeks. Uh, and, and because there's something that's really important for us to pause and pay attention to even as I read them. And so these are adapted from this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, which, as I said, is a 2,000-year-old letter that one of the early Jesus followers wrote to a community of new Jesus followers in the city of Corinth. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not proud. It is not easily angered. It rejoices with the truth. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It always hopes, always trusts, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, that is a beautiful description of love, right? Great, yes, let's go do this. And yet the danger, even as we read something like that, is we might think that God, or Paul who wrote this, or even me, your pastor, or whoever you're working through this with, is saying to you, here is a set of virtues that you are now meant to conform to and follow and attempt to do and be. This is what you have to do. Now go and do it. We can simply think that this is actually a list of virtues that we're meant to just try hard and do. In a sense, it's like saying, this is what you need to conform to. This is what you need to actually act out and be like. But there's a problem with that. There's a problem if we think that these things are now things we're just supposed to, by our willpower, go and do, or virtues we're supposed to conform to a standard of behavior. Because willpower could get you a little bit far down this road of trying to be virtuous. Like you try, I'm just going to try hard to be patient. I'm going to try hard to kind of bottle my anger and not explode. I'm going to try hard not to remember the wrongs that people have done to me. I'm going to try to persevere. You might do that for a little while. The problem with willpower and effort and persevering as the main goal to conform your life to a set of virtues is, if you succeed, probably you're going to be proud as well, <laughs> which is one of the definitions of not love, right? Because it's like, hey, I did this. Look, I've done this by my own willpower. And what it makes us realize is, hey, how come other people aren't trying as hard as I am in my relationship? How come they're not? What is it? And we end up beginning to judge other people. We can feel proud. Or perhaps, <laughs> more common, we fail. We fall short. And we're crushed and we're like, oh, I'm not loving. Oh, I failed to be loving. I was 
patient, 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 bam, and then I lost it on you, right? Like, it's more like that. One step forward, two steps back. There's got to be something more to this than just a set of virtues, than just conformity. And here's the beautiful truth about love. That God is not interested in you conforming to his standards. God is interested in him transforming you into his likeness. Do you hear that? God is not interested in you conforming to his standards of virtues of what love is. God is interested in him transforming you and me into his likeness. See, this is not something that we say, from my willpower, I am going to conform to what the standards and virtues of love are supposed to be. No, this is actually about something that comes from the outside of us in and begins to transform us from the inside out. Remember last week we talked about the, the cups and how we can't just find this sort of love within us or within our relationships. It's actually a love that God pours into us. Remember? Right? That's what we said. This is the way the love of God works. That God's not interested in you finding it in you to conform to his standards of virtues that he wants you to live up to. No, God is interested in pouring his love into our hearts to begin to transform us from the inside out to become more like him. And we pointed out that in this process, that word to describe love is a word that is found almost only primarily in the New Testament coming from the life of Jesus. It is the word agape, agape. And in case you missed last week, or um, even just to give you more understanding of what that is, I want you to watch this video by the Bible Project that explains what the word agape actually means. So if you've heard of Jesus, you probably know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English, because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day, it was a cousin language of Hebrew that is Aramaic in which the word for love is rachma. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important, loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. 
And so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them, expecting nothing nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. Did you see that? I think what this means is love primarily is not about virtues. It's about relationships. It is about relationships. First, our relationship with God. And elsewhere in scripture, it says, this is love. Not even that we loved God, but that he loved us. The beginning point of love, the beginning point of being transformed from the inside out to become more loving people is the love of God for us. It is about our relationship with God. The whole book of scriptures is not only about love, it is about love relationships. Our relationship with God as we receive that love and then inevitably our relationship with the people around us. And so I felt like for today when it comes to sort of pausing, we have to pause to remember this is not about behaviors. We are meant to simply go and try to um, imitate or do somehow um, by our willpower. This is about first and foremost receiving the love of God, letting God's love pour into our lives. And so I wanted to just spend a few minutes 
today uh, with a passage that's come up a couple of times in our study of love, not the one from 1 Corinthians 13, but one that was written a couple thousand years before that one, describing not what love is, but who God is. And I want to read it for you again, because we want to camp out here for a few moments. This is from Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor or hang on to his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. This is one of, but not the only, um, descriptions of God, his nature, his love. And I just wanted to spend a few minutes here just reflecting on this, allowing this to sink in, not just in our heads, but into our hearts. Those first few lines, God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, are actually repeated a few times throughout scripture to describe who God is. And the first person to say it is God himself. It's how he introduces himself. You know, like if you meet someone at a cocktail party or whatever, you know, those things you used to go to where you saw people in person and say, hi, I'm Gene. I'm the... uh, primary partner in such and such a law firm. Hi, I'm Bill. I'm CEO of what, like, right? We introduce ourselves with the way we want people to know us. <laughs> There's other things we don't want them to know about us. We don't lead with those things, you know? Um, we lead, well, this, what does God lead with in introducing himself to his people? I'm compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger and I'm abounding. It's the nature and character of God. It's incredible. This is God's lead introduction for what he wants us to know about who he is. And can I just speak honestly and and directly to, to us as a community? For some of you, you need to know that this is who God is and to know that God is not like your earthly father. He's not like the mother you grew up with. He's not like the sibling who used to kind of run you down with their words. He's not like that hot and cold friend you have that sometimes seems so, um, you know, focused on you and other times seems to not care about you at all, right? Those are, those love relationships are the ones that shape our understanding of love. And for some of us, the image of love that we saw growing up or we've seen in our friendship is explosive in anger, is unpredictable is not compassionate, said, come on, stop crying, get yourself together. You know, God helps those who help themselves. You know, it says nowhere in scripture. That was Abraham Lincoln, not any writer of scripture, right? Uncompassionate, maybe kept a record of wrongs. You always, you never, uh, was not persevering, was not faithful. That's the picture we have of love. And somehow, even though maybe not consciously or consciously, we think that's who God is. You need to know that's not who God is. God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He's not maybe the voice of your father or your brother or your friend. Some of us need to know this is who God is and God is nothing like your own voice to yourself. Some of us have a voice towards ourselves that is harsh, condemning. You idiot. 
How come you keep screwing up? What's the matter with you? When are you going to fix yourself? Those are our voices to us. We don't, we keep a record of our wrongs and never forget them. We never let ourselves forget our failures. We explode in anger with ourselves. We're critical. We don't persevere with ourselves. We give up on ourselves. We're not faithful. We don't trust ourselves. <laughs> That's the voice of love towards ourselves, but it is not the voice of God. You need to receive the voice of God to you, not some of us, the voice of ourselves. And God is not like the evil one, right? The devil in scripture, one of the names of the devil is the accuser, the one who is constantly pointing his finger at us. He lies to us to get us to do destructive things. And then when we do it, he points his finger. Look at what you've done. What does the scripture say about God? God does not always accuse. He is not constantly pointing his finger. He doesn't hang on to his anger. In fact, you know what he does with our sin? He removes it from us as far as possible so that it is not even attached to us anymore. That's who God is to you, not the voice of the evil one. So whether it's the voice of a parent or a friend or yourself or the evil one, we need the voice of God to trump all of those things saying this is who God is to receive that love. And so I want you to do that now just for a few minutes as uh, a worship team leads us in a song called Reckless Love. And it is one person's poetic description of just how faithful, just how pursuing, just how relentless and faithful the love of God is for them. And so I want you to just personalize that. I want you to hear this saying, yeah, this is the voice of the love of God to me. And so let's listen together. You want to just listen or you can just sing along if you want, but, but take time to actually receive it. I was your father 
I know for some of you, um, maybe the idea of worship and singing, even this thing is new or foreign, or you always wondered, oh, that's kind of a strange part of what we do. But actually, one of the ways, actually one of the primary ways to see practices that we engage in, like worship, like singing, are things, habits, routines that we do to give access to God into our hearts, to allow him to pour his love into our hearts, right? That's, that, so that's why so many of our songs are about the love of God. Um, and so worship is one of those practices that we regularly engage in. Another one that we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago is confession. One of the primary, if not the primary purpose of confession is what? To receive the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God. That is the primary. It's to allow the love of God to come to us, to actually receive it, not just mentally, yeah, I know God loves me, to actually feel him forgiving us, cleansing us, removing our sins as far away from us as East is from the West. But another practice that we're not so aware of that is actually a really important thing to regularly engage in is the practice of gratitude. 
we think gratitude is, has to do with politeness. You know, we're raised, hopefully, probably to like say thank you when somebody gives you a gift. Say thank you when someone serves you a meal. Say thank you when someone does something. It's about politeness. <laughs> um, but God doesn't need us to be polite to him. Um, he's not insecure that he does things for us and is waiting for us to thank him. This, you didn't thank me. <laughs> you know, it's not, as I said to you, God is not codependent. He doesn't somehow need our gratitude to feel motivated to continue to love us. So if God doesn't need us to express gratitude to him, who does? Like, we do. We need it. Why? Because rehearsing, remembering, rethinking the the goodness and the love of God and his gifts to us remind us that he loves us. When we are grateful, when we contemplate all that he has done and all that he has given to us, it's like going through an old photo album of looking at beautiful memories of things you experienced with people you love. What, you look at those and you remember your love. You remember the relationship. That's what gratitude is. It cultivates, it, it recultivates, it reminds us that God loves us. And so we want to pause this, this time, this time that you're carving out, whether you're listening in the car or you're watching uh, online, or whether it's Sunday morning or some other time in the week, to actually sila, to pause and take time to remember concretely the different ways that God has shown his love to you so that we can have an experience of love. And there's a couple questions I want to give you now to actually reflect on his love. And these can be questions you can just think about on, on your own if you are on your own. Um, if you're with others, you can just reflect on them silently, or you, you may want to discuss these with the people that you're with. Here's a couple of questions to remember his love.